Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I am back again with Alec Bianco and Katarina Kern. How are y'all doing today? Very good. Good. Thanks for having us back. We Last time we spoke about the beginning of Ovid's Metamorphosis, uh, Creation and, and the Four Ages. Um, as we mentioned, we'll be jumping around a little bit and just doing some excerpts from Ovid. And so this week we will be doing one that many people are probably familiar with by name, if they have, even if they hadn't read it, um, or like me, they're familiar with the... Um, the story just from hearing other people talk about it, um, which is uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. And then we also cover uh, the death of Orpheus. So I wanted to kind of give a little bit more of him than, than what maybe before you're used to. Have either of y'all, had either of y'all read this Or I think, Alec, you were saying you'd read through the whole thing a couple of years ago, right? That's right. It's been a while since I've read this particular story. It's more gruesome than I remember. <laughs> Yeah, I was like I said, I was only out familiar with it as kind of a outline sketch. Uh, you know, people reference it all the time, but I was I was quite surprised by the amount of detail in it actually, and and some of the details, starting with the fact that well, it's not starting; it's later in. But you know, with him, he he when he requests Eurydice from from Hades, he says if he can't take her with him, then then and he asks him to allow him to stay, which I just hadn't ever caught that part of it, or so that was pretty interesting. Um, Katarina, what, what jumped out to you first this time reading through? I know you said you've read it before, but it's also been a little while since you've been with Ovid. So, uh, um, I mean, a lot of things jumped out to me. I don't, I don't know which direction you want me to go in. I guess, I guess the thing that was most strikingly beautiful was reading his death right after reading the initial tale of Mm -hmm. Orpheus and Eurydice. I, I had never noticed the, um, the the structure with the snake and the repetitions right. there, how when you pair them with right back to back, and I know that they're not meant to be that way, so I don't really know to what extent this is accurate, but it seems rather chiastic. Mm-hmm. And so I was just really struck by the beautiful imagery that was used there that I hadn't noticed on previous readings of it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know just from table of contents that he appears in in between in a couple of the other um sections in, in book two at ten um before he, you know his, his death kind of opens up book 11 but I, I i saw that jumped out to me too when I first reading the uh orpheus and eurydice you know that, that snake image and the snake and the heel image jumped out to me as uh echoes of eve but but it really really did kind of catch me off guard to come back around and see that he had the he, and he's protected from the snake at the end, which is was, was kind of interesting by the gods. So it was a very interesting echo or chiastic structure. Certainly it wouldn't be accidental, right? That those two things are in both places. So mm-hmm. yeah, right. Alec, anything in particular jump out to you from the, from the first story here? Yeah, I am trying to understand who Orpheus is. I think that's mm-hmm. my main question. I want to understand who this guy is. You know, Ovid is writing these stories in a context where everybody already knows these stories or are familiar with them to some degree. So he doesn't give us a lot of context, right. contextual clues. So I'm trying to understand who he is from what we're given here by Ovid. And I'm 
I'm fascinated by his relationship with nature. And you see that especially in the in the story of his death. Right. Yeah. Um, with all the trees and the river mourning him. But I suppose before before we get to that, the he's this bard that has this sort of intimate connection with nature, with the trees and with the uh, the rivers, waters, the land, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, so so I'm wondering, do you guys think that his ability to convince the lords of the underworld to give up Eurydice, Eurydice to back is that con- is it connected with his his sort of power over nature, or are those two separate things? That's interesting. I'm so, Go ahead. Um, okay. I, I'm just so glad that you brought that up because I was wondering as I was reading the story, this theme of dominion and power just kept popping mm-hmm. up and I was trying to identify who who are the forces at play and what is the narrator telling us about, again, like you mentioned about Orpheus, um, but his relationship to the underworld and why was he able to hold this sway over them and who's actually in charge. This This theme of power kept rolling around in my mind and I have a lot of questions around it. So I'm really glad that you asked that question. I don't have an answer to throw out, but I'm really glad you asked the question. Yeah. Well, and what struck me when I read the, um, when I read the second, the narrative of his death, I saw the same thing with all the power he has over nature through his song. Um, and then, and then I realized in the, in, in, in the first story, we get this list of the people who he moves. It's not just, um, I guess Hades and Persephone. Uh, it's it's uh, the Furies and um, Sisyphus. It's the only time Sisyphus gets a break from rolling the rock. He like stops and sits on the rock. <laughs> um, the uh, and and what struck me was that in the first story, um, the song so moves um, members of the supernatural. Right these these elements, these people who are have special purpose in in the underworld. Um, or the fates or the furies. Um, and then in the second story, it's almost entirely the super, the, I mean, the natural, uh, uh he does, there's some effect on the river gods and once he's, once he's killed, but the early part of it is how his song is soothing the beasts and the field, um, and can even stop the rock that's been hurled at him from hitting. Um, so the same idea arose from, like for me, like how does he have such dominion through his song? Um, and the only clue I had was in the first of the two where it refers to him as the muses, the muses son T- kind of toward the, I don't, sorry, I don't have the line numbers, unfortunately in, in mind, but um, the it's shortly after, you know, he says that he's kind of um, run away from women and has wants nothing to do with women. And, and then it says uh, a hill there was, and on that hill, a mead with venture with, with verdure thick, but destitute of shade. Where now the muse's son no long no sooner sings, no sooner strikes the sweet surrounding resounding strings. Um, sorry, that was a terrible reading of that. Uh, but but I what I wasn't sure of there was is it referring to him as the muse's sons, um, kind of poetically because he does have this master masterful art. Um, because uh, you know he couldn't be the son of all the muses. 
if that makes sense, literally. And so then I was I had the same kind of curiosity. Where does he come from? Where does his where does his great gifts and strength come from? Well, we know his mother is Calliope, so one of the muses. Mm-hmm. So he is intimately connected with them in that sense. Um, and so he has this kind of godly power, but it doesn't seem to, you know, he's not like pulling that card, so to speak. Right. <laughs> Here, it seems to be something that he, that's just in his character. Yeah, he doesn't even go and, to Calliope the same way some other demigods do, right? When when he loses Eurydice. Um, I think it's interesting that at the end, and maybe in Lightning, when the snake comes for his head and Apollo freezes the snake right mid-bite with its jaws open, Apollo freezes him. And I think that that is hearkening to the relationship between Apollo and Orpheus this idea that Orpheus is enlightened with wisdom. And because until that point, as I was reading through, I was wondering, does he have this potency in his song because he begins by going into the underworld? Because we see that in so many hero tales, mm-hmm. that what you bring out from the underworld is empowering. So I was like, oh man, because the, the tales between the two that we read are Orpheus singing his songs. So much of what we're reading from Ovid is in the mouth of Orpheus. And so it just kind of in the same sense that we see with other Greek poets, the the character is also the the author. They're right. kind of, he's kind of pre- presenting himself as that character in some parts of it. But then at the end, when I saw that aspect of Apollo, it was so intriguing to me because, you know, there's this idea of, okay, now wisdom is protecting him. Um, but so many times throughout, we see this conflict between love and death from the very beginning. It's when we see, um, Orpheus describing the way that his wife dies. He says in my translation, it says, my wife is the cause of my journey. So interesting there that she's the potency. She's the power. A viper she trod on diffused its venom into her body and robbed her of her best years. I long to be able to accept it. And I do not say I have not tried love one. And then he references how, um, well, I'll just keep reading because it's, it's the next line. He is a God well known in the world above, though I do not know if that is so here, though I imagine him to be here as well. And if the story of that rape in ancient times is not a lie, you also were wedded by a more. I don't, is, I don't know. Um, the names are different in different translations, but so here off the bat, we see this tension between, okay, well, he wants to accept, he wants to maybe be, um, maybe allow the fates to take their role if accepting her death is the fates. I don't know if that's necessarily, that might be a jump. It might just be more like the uh, the natural overflow of death, right? The snake coming out of the underworld to come up and mm-hmm. bite the woman is symbolic of, of death coming up. So maybe it's just the tension between love and death. And now... He's wondering, okay, well, what is the role that love plays in the underworld? Can love take dominion in the underworld? Hmm. And then the allusion to the other story is Aphrodite telling Cupid, hey, we have control over the two domains, but we don't have control over the third, the underworld. Let's make sure we have it. And so that's how Persephone goes down in the first place. So anyway, I I don't hmm. remember where I why I got off on this whole tangent. I think it was this question of dominion and um 
Oh, yeah, the relationship of Orpheus to the muses and where he gets his power. I'm wondering to what extent it's from a blessing from the gods. It's maybe something he gained in the underworld. It's maybe something he gains from love. Maybe it doesn't mm. have to do with any of those things. But that's those are just things that I'm thinking about as I try to answer that question. That's helpful because it wasn't as clear in my translation that love was the the god he was talking about from up above. Like it's not, uh, it just isn't that. It's referenced as a god from above without much clarity on who who he's talking about. Um, so that's interesting to think about. Obviously, there's some there's some love involved at least in Hades and Persephone's um, reign together, right? Their their joint reign, as you pointed out from their from their story. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, is it, it that's good? I, I guess I'd always read it as. Or I'd always not read it. I'd always thought of it as he's able to convince them because of his existing prowess, right? As a, a as an artisan of of music, um, that that's why he's able to move uh, the underworld to release Eurydice. But um, the idea that maybe he just appealed to something that was that was meaningful, and then he and then he comes back with greater like a greater power in his skill um, and then those those unfolding stories between here and his death happen uh through his song is an interesting one to, to, to contemplate um it's a theory i have no idea if it's correct yeah. <laughs> yeah it's um i mean it would certainly it would certainly follow with a lot of kind of like whatever you want to call it hero's journey kind of stuff right where there's a there's a thing that they go through that they come back and are able to that, that often includes suffering and loss, but they then have a greater strength on the other side of it for other purposes. So, but I would never even thought to think about that had I, without putting some of these stories together, like just reading Orpheus and Eurydice in, in isolation. I don't think I would have thought of that or be able to see it. I also didn't know know because I didn't hadn't read the story that it it begins with. Um, it begins with him calling on 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 one of the gods associated with marriage, Hymen, but he comes immediately. Like that bad omen comes right right at the very beginning of those of that marriage, um, and then it almost immediately take. Well, it it takes place basically in the marriage celebration. If I'm if I'm reading this correctly, because she's bit while she's in the naiad train, which I assume was part of that kind of celebration of the of the marriage feast, right? Um. So they weren't even, he didn't have her as a wife for, or even if, if they even completed the ceremony. So that was something that was, that was kind of new for me as far as never having read the story, um, that there was that immediate, uh, you know, almost, almost there, that immediate, um, foreboding as soon as he calls on the gods of, of the marriage. Um, it's a interesting parallel too, with how, how quickly he how quickly she dies and then how quickly she dies again <laughs> i mean the guy is just not in a good <laughs> he's not dealt good lots in this life. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's very yeah it's it's but in, in some ways it's really beautiful and i don't know i, I maybe maybe going back to what what you've been saying and talking about this power it's so interesting how powerless he is in many ways. So he's able to convince 
Persephone and Hades and the Furies, everyone there, Cerberus, Charon, all of them, to do the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, to mine says, Rhodope's bard then dared to travel down to Styx through the Tenarian Gate to try the shades as well. Um, and then, so th- this happens. They, they they're convinced. They the the Furies says then for the first time, as they say, tears wet the Furies' cheeks. His song had overcome them. No royal wife can refuse his pleas, nor can the ruler of those depths. Yeah. So they give him to her, give her to him, rather. But then, I guess what I'm struck by is around line 70 or so, after she's taken away because he looks back at her, out of love, mind you, his, two, his wife's two deaths left Orpheus thunderstruck, just like the man who saw the Stygian dog's three necks, the middle one in chains. His shock subsided only when his former nature was lost as rock rose up along his frame. Or just like Olanos, who once confessed a crime because he wanted to seem guilty, and so on. Though Orpheus begged in vain, the ferryman refused to let him cross a second time. Mm. For seven days he sat upon the bank, filthy, refusing nourishment, sustained by worry, mental grief, and tears. Complaining that Erubus' gods were cruel, he left for Rodope and north wind battered Hamus. So you get this guy who's a brilliant bard. He, nature respects him, loves him, obeys him even. He's powerful enough or convincing enough, charming enough to go down to Hades itself. Mm-hmm. And convince them to give back his wife. Makes a tiny error, loses her. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and now he's just stuck begging. Yeah. And it's, that that's what just gets me. Well, it's, it's so interesting. Be, he's become a beggar. It's interesting because we don't get like this um detailed description of how he got in other than he he was able to kind of coax severus like there's like a one little line about him being able to coax severus right but then once he's back out he's just he's you're like you said he's powerless he's he's begging to get a, uh he's begging uh uh, uh Caron to get back across the sticks right and and suddenly whatever power he had to get in the first time is cut, he's cut off from whatever back door he found in is gone and um it is. It's really. It's seven days. Uh, you know, um, just the description of him. You know, he's filthy, covered in tears, and is it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, especially after the lines you read earlier about, or we talked about earlier about him wishing to stay if she if she can't go with him, he'd rather just be down there with her. Um, and then and and, and like Katarina said, it makes those lines at the end of his of uh, the death of Orpheus so powerful. Um, because they come when they come back together. Um, I mean, I just, I just have that whole last section underlined. It's like, I don't know, 10 lines or something, but it's, it's just beautiful describing them back together. Um, in, in, in Hades. Could we actually look closely at those? Because I just was left with so many questions. Yeah. If we look at the end where, um, he, he looks at her and the narrator does not judge him for having failed. And that's mm-hmm. interesting because in all the versions of this that I knew as a child, it was what a fool he looked back. Right, right. But the narrator 
the narrator makes it very clear that they are not judging him. He looked back out of love. I'm going to try and find that in my text. Well, not just the narrator, um, but but he says Eurydice doesn't blame him. That, I mean, yeah. At least, at least mm-hmm. all he reads in mine. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, mine says afraid she was no longer there and eager to see her. The lover turned his eyes. Interesting that it's the lover, right? Not the mm-hmm, singer, mm-hmm. Or the whatever else. In an instant, she dropped back, and he, unhappy man, stretching out his arms to hold her and be held, clutched at nothing but the receding air. Dying a second time, now there was no complaint to her husband. What then could she complain of, except that she had been loved? She spoke a last farewell, Now that now scarcely reached his ears, and turned again towards the same place. So that moment of him looking back at her, I just, I can't, I, there's so many different theories that I have for why that was wrong. Why, why was he not allowed to look back? Mm-hmm. Why could he not look at her? Why was his love the problem here? And then if we look at the very final lines of the death in the end of 11, I'm going to flip to that in mind. If we look at the last lines, it says, the, um, let me make sure this is the right place. Yeah. The ghost of Orpheus sank under the earth and recognized all those places it had seen before and searching the fields of the blessed. He found his wife again and held her eagerly in his arms. So all these echoes, right? Now they, he finally gets to do what he tried to do and failed. There they walk together side by side. Now she goes in front and he follows her. Now he leads and looks back as he can do. Sorry. And looks back as he can do in safety now at his Eurydice. So it's just so the echoes are obvious. There's this um, antithesis that's intended to show healing and completion now, but it's just so interesting to me. And I cannot, I don't know why he wasn't allowed to look back, why there is this fullness of love now in the underworld that he's had with her and he's allowed to be with her. Why is he now allowed to look back and look at mm-hmm. her and she can lead and he can follow. There's just, I just have so many questions around this, but I think the echoes are asking us to notice them. I think I love that. I think that's, that's really good. And actually what you're saying, there's more, it's a deeper question, obviously, but part of what you're saying has actually helped me illuminate, illuminate the text a little bit more clearly because in, in the first section, um in book in book 10 or around line 62 the the latin is actually um ambiguous so i think the way yours read it suggested that he reached back out to her when after he looks and she starts to slip away that he reaches out to her but the latin it doesn't state who did which who reaches out so in my translation, the, the McCarter translation, she she writes it that way. The wretch reached out, attempting both to catch and to be caught, but only grabbed thin air. Huh. So oh. it, it raises that question of, okay, so who's who's reaching? But what you just said about the end makes me think he did. Because at the end of a book, of the, the first part of book 11... He finds Eurydice in blessed fields. His yearning arms embrace her. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There could be that kind of parallel there that he reaches out, can't, can't get her. And now he gets to reach out and finally embrace her. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, it, the Latin's ambiguous there. So something, uh, something to think about. Yeah. 
Mm. What do you guys think about why he wasn't allowed to look back and now he is? I mean, obviously there's the, the, he's dead now, so he belongs in this land. But what is it about looking back? What does that mean? And why couldn't he do it? And why was it wrong, even though it was done out of love? Yeah. Um, I think in my head, I've, I can always, or, or often pictured, like they were walking and he's got like his hand back and he's holding on. But that probably isn't actually the case when I read this now. Right there. Because uh, it because it describes the path out is pretty rough. Um, uh, uh, what did it say? Uh, and through the noiseless throng, their way they bend, and both with pain the rugged road ascend. Dark was the path, and difficult and steep, and thick with vapors from the smoky deep. So it, it's more of a picture to me, like where you're kind of almost, if you've ever been hiking or rock climbing, you know the 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 part of the trail where you basically are having to use hands and feet all together just to kind of keep yourself going across rough ground. Um, and you add to that, it's dark and it's smoky. And, and so he, he really only has um, faith or belief maybe there that she's behind, right behind him, like she's supposed to be and, or can hear her voice or whatever. Um, and so I wondered because in the, in, at the end for me, when it goes to, um, the train he joins her in, and I forgot what word you, what words your translation used, Katarina. Now that you said it, I had it in my head, and I lost it. But it's it says the pious train. Um, I think it said of the you're said of like the realm of Hades for the for the I can't remember what it said now. Um, among the shadows, of I'm the not pi- sure where you're looking. Sorry, right when he right when he goes down in at the end of in his death, it says his ghost flies downward to the stigging shore and knows the places it had seen before among the shadows of the pious train is how mine says it is where he finds Eurydice. Yours said something else like um where what part of hades he finds her in but mm. but that word pious when you ask the question maybe wonder if it's if that's the issue if, if he's if he's not having faith in what he's been told like you can have her back but mm. you can't look back we're gonna let her out and he just he he's overwhelmed with his love for her that he can't trust that. And so she can't be mad at him because he was out of love, but also he doesn't get to have her because he wasn't, um, there was a lack of piety there, a lack of trusting that what the gods said they would do, they would do uh, or allow, they would allow. Um, and that, because I've, yeah, I've, I've always, you know, it's usually just said, you know, what an idiot he turned around and looked right. It kind of even mm-hmm. loses that aspect of, of, of it being out of love and that he's not judged by her even um i think mm-hmm. it's often left out when people are talking about it or just referencing it and so the only thing i could think of is if there's a there's an order of of things there and his love for her was good but it was it wasn't ordered well with with the what he should have had as far as piety was concerned piety towards whom like i'm trying to understand what that means that Ovid is saying here with this story because it seems like so far most of the story is saying that love conquers all and to use the modern question most most of his story sorry the story of Orpheus yeah um yeah I mean my 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 only my only answer would be the gods because that's what that's going to be what I default to with my brain thinking about the Aeneid and other things. Uh, and because it's the, because it's, it's, 
it's Hades and Persephone that give him that give him permission to take her out, right? Um, of of the underworld, and so they've given the permission for her to leave, and they've said she'll be able to leave as long as he doesn't look back until they get to the to the open air. Um, and so that's 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 my only guess, and the only thing I have to kind of back that up with the rest of it is that he goes on to continue doing things that are good, you know with his song uh being bringing peace to the trees and the and the and the birds and the beasts and it's mm-hmm. in it's it's um it's bacchus I, I don't know i guess they are they bacchus's prophetesses that attack him um mm-hmm. they're it's like bacchanal bacchanalia or something like that in the way in, in my translation um but then they're the next very next story which we didn't read is them getting punished by bacchus Right. So it, it seems that his music is serving um kind of the purposes of maybe the purposes of the gods after he leaves mm-hmm. after, after his story with with Eurydice, um, because he has protection from Bacchus when they when they kill him, or Bacchus, you know, gives retribution. And then obviously we have Apollo protecting his head, like like you brought up. Um Yeah. So that's I see what you're saying. So piety's my only it's my only guess. It's my only guess. It's my only, you know, so far. Mm-hmm. I don't know how strongly I would defend it. I feel it, like there's all these internal paradoxes in the story because we have, yes, it, it's, there's definitely an element of piety. I, I agree with you. Um, but then if we look at the story of Hades and Persephone, that whole story is talking about how Aphrodite was trying to make sure that love was the strongest force in the underworld and she succeeds. And, mm. you know, Hades takes Persephone and weds her. And now love is this is even in Hades and Orpheus goes down there to discover that. Like he starts by saying, I don't know if love rules here. If I can believe the stories, I guess Mm. it does. Um, But at the end we see that it is there with him and his wife, even though they are dead. So it just seems like there's, when we say the gods, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, definitely. But then what rules the gods and is, is Ovid telling us that love rules them? Because that's odd. I don't know. Yeah. This is a really, really good question. And I, I'm i struggling to see it as a piety issue. Okay. Because in the Greek tragedies, tragedies happen to people all the time. And it isn't always because they committed some sin. It'll happen to them just because tragedies happen. Um, And it's only a tragedy if the hero is innocent. That's a, that's a necessary attribute of a great tragedy. And, and, and to your point, Brandon, it seems to be that Orpheus is a pious person. So if that is true, then when he looks back, I don't think he's committing a sin. Which makes me think it's not an issue of piety in the sense that he committed an impious act by looking back at Eurydice. But maybe the question is something, uh, rather than piety, of propriety. And and I wonder if maybe we need to think a little bit about Eurydice here. Who is she? Okay. And I wonder mm. if if it's if her, his not looking back is actually because she needs to do this. I don't know, though. I don't want to put too much stock into this, but so in round line 50 or so, I think I started it, but um, you, Sisyphus, sat on your rock. Then for the first time, as they say, tears wet the fury's cheeks. His song had overcome them. The royal wife cannot refuse his pleas, nor can the ruler of those deaths. They summon Eurydice, 
among the recent shades, and she stepped and she comes stepping forth, slowed by her wound. Rodope's hero takes her on these terms. He can't look back till out of the avernal abyss, or else the gift will be annulled. So she still got the snake bite. And yeah. she's very recent. And I wonder, I, I don't know. I mean, this is this is speculation to, to in many ways because but you know the the whole he, he dared to come into the Tenarian cavern and dared to cross the river Styx. He's doing something daring. Mm-hmm. And he's in a place he does not belong, clearly. Um, and she's in a place that she does belong. And now she needs to come out. And he only gets to lead her insofar as he doesn't transgress the the boundaries. So not necessarily in the context of piety or impiety, but rather in the context of, are you respecting the boundaries of this place? We've mm-hmm. given you an opportunity and now it's time to, but I don't know. Um, the other way I was thinking of it is perhaps she needs to make this journey on her own. And mm-hmm. by looking back, because he looked back because he was scared for her and wanted to help her, they took her back mm-hmm. because she didn't do it on her own. I don't know. I don't know. That's such an interesting point about how she's limping. And I mean, of course, that would make it hard for her to get out. So just in terms of the narrative, it makes sense that he would look back to see that she's there. She's limping along. Even when she's not on rough terrain, she was limping. Um, but I wonder if that somehow helps us understand the ending with Apollo freezing the snake with its mouth wide open, ready to strike. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder if there's something to which Orpheus had to go back to freeze the snake that bit her foot. Hmm. I mean, I don't know in terms of the plot, whether that whether it matters at all. But symbolically, that's certainly... The way, the, the way that the story plays out and the the necessary reversal of, of this snake striking her foot at the beginning is that its mouth is now frozen open. And it's because of Orpheus and his love that that was achieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I kind of want to follow this, this love thing um, because so the, going to the death now, maybe it, he dies because he refuses love with these um bacantes these these maenads they desire him greatly and he refuses all love with any women whatsoever um and he, the death is brutal man mm-hmm. he's just torn to pieces and it's it's even more brutal because I think you pointed out early on, Brandon, but that you know he has this power to stop the rocks and 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 Thirsty's being you know thrown at him, but then eventually it's just not enough, and they just overcome him and just rip him to shreds, and his head is floating along in the river. Um, and I'm going into great detail here for you know. To make sure we we really get how how gruesome this is. Um, this is what the listeners want to hear. That's right. Yeah, given them what, what they want. Yeah. Um, but then it's so it's oh man, it's just you have this horrible tragedy in the first story, and then you have this beautiful, tragic but beautiful ending where they they get everything they want. 
the snake is turned to stone, they can finally embrace each other in the land of, in the fields of Elysium, um, which is the land for righteous souls. Right. So these are two pious individuals that almost got a second chance. It didn't quite work out, but in the end, they get it. And in throughout it, it's this story of sort of unrequited love. Um, mm. Can't ever get the love that they want. Mm-hmm. And also a protection of that love. You know, I'm not going to, which ultimately is his demise, but he's saving that love for Eurydice. There's something really powerful about the about them. Yeah, there's a there's a element of chastity there that you find very rarely in, at least in my experience with the, the Greek and Roman myths. Right, that a, a chastity that's almost that's borderline a Christian chastity, where he's just not. There's just that one woman for him, life or death, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, Other than the uh, pederasty, but yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Be careful with that. <laughs> um, but. Because when you're talking about the the things that come that are that are that fall in love with him or that are charmed by him, the women, they're they're demigod type women, right? The naiads and the dryads, the kind of women who end up becoming these kind of symbols of beauty and temptation and desire all throughout Western art, right? Um, in, in many ways, and he and he denies all of that as soon, you know when he gets back to the to the land of the living, um, and and. And his powers only over they're only able to overwhelm his power when they overwhelm his song by with horrific sound, you know, the screeching and drums to drown him out is 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 the only way to kind of it, it they have to destroy his beauty with ugliness based or they you know cover it with ugliness to to, to remove its powers, beauty. Um but ultimately it, like you said, it's it doesn't it can't it can't completely uh Kill, I mean, well, it kills it, but it can't complete kill it for, as far as into eternity because he's protected by the gods. The serpent is turned to stone and he's back with um, Eurydice. Yeah, it's really hard. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's really hard for us as 21st century Christian readers to not like dive into some of those symbols. You know, I mentioned it already that, that striking the heel, the snake striking the heel is, you know, has echoes of Eve. And then certainly the idea that the that the 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 ardent lover of, of the woman would would then destroy the snake, the serpent, right? Um, but that's where my mind wants to go. But I do think it's still that it's still there's still something to that, whether you read it with a Christian lens or not. This idea that he needed to go back up in order to make things right. He needed to stay in order to make things right. Once he once you're just doesn't come with him, which would be turn the snake, uh, defeating the snake. And I am really curious about her need to be able to her need to climb out on her own because we don't get much about Eurydice and who she is, you know, before, you know, the story just kind of drops you in that they're about to get married and then she ends up dying. But we are told that she's in the Elysian fields, right, which does tell us that she's a pious person um, uh, for, for Ovid. So that. um that that element of her 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 own arc is interesting to me, um, and if that really plays more into, like you were saying, more than the piety, Alec, um, but propriety. They they had to 
both walked themselves out and that included her doing it on her own. Brandon, I think that your um, parallels to the biblical narrative are really important. I don't think that, I think that noticing these parallels are important because there are universal symbols that Mm. are at play here that, that are across, you know, all kinds of myths from, you know, the entire world. So I think that noticing, okay, here's what a snake means and here's what the woman means and all of those things and drawing that out from scripture is just really important. I don't think that we need to um, ignore the scriptural references. Right. And I think that we can do it in such a way that it's not reading scripture into Ovid. Mm-hmm. I think we can try and find a universal truth within both. Right. It's good. Thank you. That, I'm always trying to thread that needle, right? Where's that universal truth and where am I just kind of pressing my dogma back on <laughs> onto something from the yeah. past? So. And that's a really hard line to walk, but I think it's a it's it's the reason we're reading this is what is the truth we can find here? Right. And so we need to be able to dig into them and say, okay, well, what is the universal truth here? Um so, yeah, it's something we shouldn't be afraid to do. We should just be cautious while we do it. Mm-hmm. And, and what I find so fascinating, the difference for them is there is no, there is no, um, there's no getting around death for the, for the Romans, right? Or the Greeks for that matter. Like, even when he goes into the first time he knows I'm, we're all, he says to them, we're all going to end up back here. I'm just asking for her for a little more time before she has to stay here. Um, so they don't have that same kind of hope of, something you know that 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 keeps you from death we're all going to be here and then and then those symbols you're talking about there's there isn't there is evil that wants to bring that wants to cheat you from life and and take you from life and and cut cut short love and all those things um and it has to be defeated to be for love to endure right so i think in that sense those that that's there which makes you like which makes me like the idea of it being um your idea, Katarina, of, of love kind of ruling in all places in this story. I, I, I want to think about that more. Um, it does you, it rules in all places because of what, what, uh, uh, Venus and Cupid did to get it into the underworld. Um, but is it, or really, at least it's, it's sorry, power. Yeah. It's powers available everywhere. If, if nothing else. Right. And, and how much does that play into this, to this story? Um, uh, is that what's allowing him is the idea of love what's allowing him to even went over the went over the underworld to begin with yeah i don't i don't mean to present it as though i think that it's definitely saying hey love conquers all but there's i think there's a tension that's presented here where it's almost as if ovid or i don't know maybe just as the story evolved over time the people telling the story were were trying to figure out the nature of of love and death and the relationship between the two of them and so you hear the question throughout the text constantly without a concise answer and and that's why multiple times there's there's even a direct reference to okay well do, does love win i mean he says love wins um or is something else ruling is death ruling does death the one that always gets to conquer all like is presented multiple times i mean that there's that illusion that you reference that they're continually saying so I think I think it's more a question that is being wrestled with, and there's this constant tension between love and death. But I think it seems to be insinuating that love is perhaps there can be a harmony between the two mm. in the end. That it there, that the tension does not have to be animosity. There can be a healthy tension. Yeah, interesting. 
Yeah, I wonder if for Ovid, love is, you know, we've got a lot of stories to read, um, <laughs> which we're not going to be able to read, unfortunately. So it's it's hard to say, but I wonder if for Ovid, love is the sort of binding element or rather grounding element in all of these stories of change. Hmm. Um, not to force the title into this story too much, but, you know, this book is entitled Metamorphoses. Right. Um, what's the change here in this story? Right. Yeah, that was... that, that's, that's an important question. I think what's the change. And, and I see a couple of things, I think this sort of come out through our conversation. One that I think is fascinating is right after the story of, of, of Orpheus and Eurydice, you have a, a charming little short story called Orpheus charms the trees. And it's basically just a long list of different kinds of trees. Um, but it's it's really beautiful. And then, of course, I see the 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 contradistinction between that or the juxtaposition between that and then his brutal death at the hands of nature. These Bacantes, uh, nature-worshipping crazy ladies and their beasts and rocks and then the snake obviously tries to bite him so nature the thing that he once had a great harmony with now is his demise mm. but so there there's something there's a change there that's happening yeah life and death there's a change happening twice in the same story within just a hundred mm. lines um but love kind of goes through that whole tale and doesn't change it's there the mm. whole time uh, i don't know though i don't know it's interesting the trees that thing is included in my is included as part of your uh orpheus and eurydice and there's not a separate title there in mine oh nice um yeah i tried to mark through this time i was like oh i'm gonna i know i'm gonna use my orange highlighter for him to mark anything that changes since this is metamorphoses um but you're right it doesn't seem like a whole lot at first like other than if i mean if you count Eurydice's status from person to shade and shade to person, uh, both ways. Um, in in this first one, there's not there's not that many until you get to those to the trees up standing up and walking over to where Orpheus is. Um, but there's more in the second part, right? With the with the snake being turned to stone, and we get a couple other instances of something being turned, people being turned to stone too. Of that example. Um, but that's interesting to think that it's it's subtler in this story what's being changed. Go ahead, Katarina. Oh, I was just gonna to Alec. I what you said made me think about how that tension between nature and Orpheus is mirrored in the relationship between the snake and Eurydice, and how the snake represents because the snakes come up out of the under the world from the underworld. Um, they in ancient myths symbolize the Hades coming up into our realm. So when the snake comes up, it's that connection of nature attacking your DJ. So mm. that's even echoed there between that relationship. I wonder if the lack of metamorphosis is insinuating that they change forms enough in the underworld that that is in and of, in and of itself a full metamorphosis. Yeah, that's like, that's if that's your if that's your counting as a change, she's the one that changes the most in the first story, right? She goes from person to to shade to person to shade um, in those lines, um, and that 
that's interesting to think about that. And then it's such a huge change um, of status, right? Uh, of uh, then that it's on par with these things where where people are turning into cows and trees and whatnot. Um, and maybe maybe that's what he's trying to point out that that this metamorphosis is just a just as much of a huge shift as these other ones where it's something physical that you can kind of really grasp with your eyes and hands that kind of change. And maybe the ancient world wouldn't have even read it as a difference. Maybe they wouldn't need that explanation. You know, they'd read it and just be like, yes, that's a massive change right. through shade. Right. Of course, this is metamorphosis. And we look at it and we're like, hey, where's the metamorphosis? Yeah, it's just our materialist. Maybe it was just assumed. Our materialist eye, you're like, that's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. You're just crossing a river. You're just What's yeah. a big deal. <laughs> you're just dead <laughs> right, now. Right, right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. It's good to, it's good reminder that our eyes are not their eyes, right? Our ears are not their ears uh, in so many ways. The um, I'm really I was struck by like you mentioned Alec that his death is pretty brutal, um, and he's torn apart. Right, his limbs are like all over the place. But then it's like, but then it says his head and heart are had a better fate because they're floating down the river. Um, which is interesting. It's some protection by the river because the river would be a god, right? So there's a little bit of protection just even being in the river, um, but still singing in a way even though he's dead uh, and still blessing the things around him. Um, and, and then we don't really know what happens to them after he saves it. Uh, Apollo saves it from the snake. But um, I, I wondered, like, part of me wondered how much of that, um, uh, why, like why the head? Like, you know, I mean, obviously nothing else can sing, but the harp is also still playing. Right. So I, I wondered how tied that was to, to, um, I'm just not sure. I was trying to figure out what, how, how the head, why the head in particular plays in there. Um, is it just because of the face and the face is, you know, uh, how you would identify him and, and know who it was and things like that, or if, it was, if there was more to it than that? But it reminded me, but it was like it was almost the it was almost the opposite of when you read in the Iliad and their mouth is still talking, like, but like when it gets when their head gets chopped off, but it's like horrible. They're like begging for their life, and in this case, it's like it's still singing. You know that they drowned him. They drowned him out in order to kill him. But his, he keeps singing this beautiful song. So I don't know. I just really like that. And I didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> I said any ideas, but I didn't know what to make well, of it. Well, yeah. I mean, exactly. Again, another one of those strange juxtapositions of something gruesome and yet beautiful at the same time. Right. Hmm. Well, now I'll be looking for more love and nature and their coexistence as we, as we read on into other things. Did y'all have any lingering questions? Anything? I kept marking little things here and there, but I feel like we've talked about so many of them. Some of them were just like people, people or references. I didn't know what they were, but um, I don't want, I don't want to go too far afield on that kind of stuff. So. My remaining questions have to do with the way this story relates to the rest of the stories in the text. Mm-hmm. And since we're kind of hopping around, it's hard for us to know the answer to that. But I'm going to be right. curious to see how it evolves as we go over the next couple of weeks with the next stories. Yeah. I think um, one thing we talked about last week in that regards was that um, how are we reviewing the creation and then the ages? Was there was there change that was um well we we have the question right was there was the change originally from chaos to order and then progressively 
chaos comes comes back in through the various changes. Um, or uh, as you, I think you suggested, Katerina was each of those ages purposely set differently. And the, as, as the age is, is changed by the gods or who are the creator, then people change in accordance with their nature, but fitting with the, the new age. Um, and, and we get some things here where things are changing more in nature, right? People to stone snakes to stone and things like that. But then I would say probably the man to shade is within its nature. Right. And so do y'all have any thoughts about kind of what we were looking for after last week? What kind of change we're seeing? Yeah. Uh, to me, that's still a big question mark as to whether Ovid believes it is changing the nature of a thing for it to move into a stone or a tree, especially because when Orpheus sees Eurydice and realizes that she's fallen away, it says that he turns to stone just as and references all these other times that things turn to stone. So I'm not sure mm. um, to what extent Ovid believes it is a change in nature. And that's 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 still my big question mark that I'm bringing to the whole text of the metamorphosis in general. Okay. If it's a change in nature or a change within the nature of the thing. Yeah, that's a really good question to to kind of ponder as we keep reading. I'd also love, this isn't our responsibility, but I'd love for our listeners to compare this story to Virgil's version of it in the Georgics. And also, <clears throat> lest they think we forgot the obvious, um, Lot's wife turning back and turning into <laughs> a pillar of salt. Yes. <laughs> Reading that story and comparing yeah. it. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear what people have to say about that. Um, but yeah, the, I think the question of change is clearly the the primary one here um as we keep reading yeah we got a little bit of feedback from last week and if you have if you have questions or comments regarding these particular stories we'd love love to hear from you um, whether it's connections you're making to other stories or, or you know uh your answers or thoughts on some of the things we were discussing um or what you're seeing as far as this bigger question that katarina was talking about with with uh, are, is nature changing or is it changing within its nature and all of those kind of things if you have questions or comments or ways to try and trip up, trip us up on that send it to us we'd love to hear it so um, you can send that to podcast at circeinstitute.org so, um, well any uh, any closing thoughts before we talk a little bit about what's going to be coming up next week all right uh, well we will be uh, picking up a little bit more Ovid next week we'll, we will be um, looking at Cineros and Mira, which is also in book 10. I assume I'm saying that correctly. The spelling for me is C-I-N-Y-R-A-S and then M-Y-R-R-H-A, um, the story of Cineros and Mira. So that's in book 10, which is where we found Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, and we'll have some discussion on that. I know almost nothing about that story. So um, I'm looking forward to that to that conversation. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Katerina, Alec, for being here again this week. Um, it's good talking to you guys. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It's been great. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to next week too. Yeah, me too. And thanks to the listeners for pulling down the book from your shelf and dusting it off and cracking it open. We hope you'll join us next week um, for more of it. And that you'll check out other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.